Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series on generosity. If you would like more information, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians. Turn from Philippians 2 and go now to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 6 through the end of, end of the chapter. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6 through 15 this morning. Pat and Raquel Thurman were missionaries in Egypt. Full-time, they gave their heart and their life completely over to bringing the gospel to Muslims in Egypt uh, not too long ago. And there's a famous pastor who took his family over there to do a missions trip with them and be involved with how the gospel was working in the Muslim community in Egypt, and he wrote about it. Before they went out and ministered and shared the gospel and met anybody there, the missionaries that were stationed there in Egypt wanted to take them on some sightseeing. They took them to two sites as the very first thing they did in Egypt. And the first place that they went to was they just pulled through this old dusty gate, and it was, a, it was just a, a plot of overgrown grass. And from the street, it just looked like a, a parcel of land that nobody did anything to. It was wasted. It was kind of out of sight, out of, way, out of the way, and didn't look very... Um, very nice at all, to say the least. And as they got out of the car and walked through that, that dusty, overgrown field, what they came to see was tombstones. It was a, a graveyard for American missionaries who had given their life to the gospel in Egypt. On one of the tombstones, the years read 1887 through 1913. A missionary there died at the age of 25 years old. And the top of that tombstone, the name was William Borden. Have any of you guys heard of Borden Dairy before? Um, it's, I think they went out of business here recently. Everybody's drinking like oat milk and Starbucks, you know. You just, you just can't get an old 2%. It's like, it's not a thing anymore. So if you guys want to do it, go try to find that, good luck to you. You probably heard of Borden Dairy uh, the Bordens were an extremely wealthy family. When he graduated high school, his parents gave him a trip around the world, a tour of the world. And as he toured through these different countries and different places, he realized how much blessings that he had here in the States versus how much little people had in other parts of the world. As, the, as a young man, he was heir to his family fortune. He attended Yale University, where he stood out immediately from other students not because of his intellect or because of his IQ, but because of his spiritual strength. In fact, one of his classmates said after he died, he said he came to college far ahead spiritually than any of us. He had already given his heart in full surrender to Christ, and he had really done it. We who were his classmates learned to lean on him and find in him strength that was as solid as a rock. On one of the pages of his, his personal journal, William Borden wrote, something really simple that captured his life philosophy. It was say no to self and say yes to Jesus every single time. Borden was burdened for the Muslims in Egypt. He gave his life to preaching the gospel there. He refused to even buy a car for his missionary efforts, donated tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars for the gospel's cause to winning people to Christ in Egypt. Within four months of finally getting on the field, arriving there, anxious to share the gospel with the Muslims, he contracted spinal meningitis and died. 
at the age of 25. And the caption at the bottom of his tombstone simply read, apart from faith in Christ, there's no explanation for such a life. After briefly touring the, uh, the missionary graveyard, the missionaries there took them to a national museum in Egypt. It was a completely different grave site. It was the grave site and the relic from King Tutankhamun, famously known as, as King Tut. The missionaries juxtaposed William Borden's overgrown, dusty grave site with an opulent, luxurious, wealthy gravesite from King Tut. One of the graves was lined in gold. The other grave was buried in the dust. One of the graves was filled with wealth and riches. The other grave was just an, an empty, empty place. Um, the king's life was tragic. He tried to take his treasures with him when he died. Borden's life was triumphant because he sent his treasures ahead. We're right in the, the middle of a four-part series that I'm doing on giving. We've called this Generosity, the Gospel Cure for uh, Possession Obsession. And so far, we've talked about giving redemptively, giving passionately last week. This week, what I want to talk about is giving joyfully. And we're going to look at three things as it pertains to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. You're going to see a purpose, a provision, and a picture to give purposefully to the Lord, to give out of the provision that God has granted to us, and also you're going to see a picture of giving at the end of this chapter. Interesting, Paul doesn't really, when he pens this section in 2 Corinthians, he doesn't really want to write it. You get the, uh, the impression that almost like Jude, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, but instead I'm writing to you to contend earnestly for the faith when Paul pens this section in 2 Corinthians, he doesn't want to say what he says and what he writes. In chapter 9, verse 1, if you look down here, he says, it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints. It's, it's capricious. You don't, you don't need this. But I'm going to give it to you anyway, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you, to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up the most of them. What happened was Paul was collecting uh, funds for the saints who were suffering in Jerusalem. And these other churches in the area of Corinth had donated generously to help these suffering Christians. In fact, they, they donated so generously that other cities and the churches around them and closest to them heard about their giving. And they were inspired in and of themselves to give even more. Uh, but something was different about this church in Corinth. It's almost like they lost their, their motivation. They lost the, the reason to give more to the church. Their eagerness wasn't exactly what it used to be. And so Paul very plainly and carefully explains that giving to the Lord and helping out the saints is not about, it's not about you. It's not about giving money in and of itself. It's not about fixing problems. It's not about shoring up areas where a lack of funds is evident. Paul says that, that giving is about the heart, and we should give with a, a joyful, a cheerful heart to the Lord. And he expands it as he, as he goes into this text. 
So let's look down verse 6. I'm going to read through verse 9 here, 2 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 6. The Apostle Paul writes this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And then verse 7, if you highlight in your Bibles, I would encourage you to highlight this verse. But each one must, must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. I got to slow down here just for a second because a lot of people will tell you something different than what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians, and they use this verse to substantiate the claim, but it's not true. A lot of people, a lot of churches, even right here in Tulsa, many false teachers will tell you, the reason that you should give more is in order to get more. In in other words, if you want to experience blessings tomorrow, you should sow your seeds of faith today. That tactic sounds really spiritual, but ultimately it's it's self-centered. The end goal, the end motivation lands at you and what's going to benefit you. Paul uses a metaphor of, of planting and harvesting and farming, and it's really important to identify the harvest that he's talking about here. As Christians, we don't give in order to get. As Christians, we give in order to bless. We think about other people more than we think about ourselves. We think about the Lord. And so verse 6, there's a general principle that heads up this entire section. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Principles are true most of the time, but not all the time. It's much like Proverbs. Most of the time, if you are generous and you sow seeds with your giving, you will reap a harvest personally and for yourself, but not all the time. The point is the harvest here refers to to other believers. It refers to a community. It does not refer to the individual. The structure in verse 6 really brings this out. Uh, The emphasis here is, is contrasting verbs, if you read it. And there's a repeated pattern that that is mirrored as we read through this verse. Literally, if you read this in Greek, it would sound something like this. The one sowing sparingly, sparingly will also reap. The one sowing bountifully, bountifully will also reap. There's only two different words in both of those phrases, sparingly and bountifully. Both of them are right next to each other, repeated in the Greek text for emphasis. It begs the question, of the two options, Would you consider yourself as one who is sowing sparingly or one who is sowing bountifully? The structure emphasizes the contrast in the verbs. All of our attention is being drawn to those things. Verse 7, Paul is giving instructions on how to be a a cheerful giver. Look down at that text One more time, it says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. What's interesting is that, again, when you read this, the words must do, should give, any imperative or any command that your English translation has is not there in the Greek. In fact, on one of the most famous sections on giving in all of Paul's writings in the New Testament, 
you will be hard-pressed to find one imperative or one command in this entire section from verse 6 all the way through verse 15. Paul will not demand, he will not force, he will not guilt or shame people into giving. One commentator put it this way, if they comply, the church in Corinth here, if they comply, they will do so out of obedience to their Lord who gave himself for them, not out of obedience to Paul. And have you heard of this guy, uh, Letourneau, before? Have you heard of Letourneau Christian College? I think it is Letourneau College, Longview, Texas. Uh, Letourneau gave an amazing amount of money. He, was, uh, he invented earth-moving machinery, just pushing dirt around in Texas. And you make big tractors, you're going to make a whole lot of money when you invent these things. He made a fortune doing it. In fact, he was known as God's businessman businessman before it was all said and done uh, because he decided to give away 90% of his income and he was held accountable to giving 90% of his income before his death. In fact, he created clubs and organizations where very wealthy people were held accountable and encouraged to give away far more than they kept the money that God had given to him. He gave away 90% of his income because he had purposed to do so in his heart before it ever came his way. And he said this, it's a very famous quote. He says, I shovel it out, God shovels it back, God's got a bigger shovel than I do. <laughs> the best way to read verse 7 is from the end to the beginning, to read it backwards. All right? God loves a cheerful giver. Here's what you don't do as you give. Negatively, don't give reluctantly. That's a Greek word probably related to regrettably. Don't give and regret it. Don't give out of compulsion because you feel forced to. Those are both the negative sides of giving. Positively, give as you have purposed in your heart. Make a decision of everything that God has given to me, I'm going to give this much back to him. Of everything he has entrusted to me, out of the generosity that because of the gospel, the way it has landed on my heart, I'm going to give back this amount. I think verse, verse 8 and 9 are, are in this text for a time like we are experiencing today in our culture. The economy is down, inflation is up, prices are rising. During such times, it's naturally, it's it's much harder to give as believers. Verse 8 and 9 give us, give us some ammunition. How can some raise their standard of giving when the economy is falling? Just trace the indefinite pronouns as you read through these verses. Verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in all good works. And he quotes uh, Psalm 112 there, which is a wisdom psalm, wisdom to be a wise, wise giver. Uh, the application is, is extremely clear. God has given you everything that you need. In a personal relationship with him, the word of God that he has given to you is sufficient for living a life of godliness. We have all things to us because of God's good grace. How can we not give back to him? what he's entrusted to us. Number one is the purpose in giving. Number two in your text is the provision. God provides for us to give back to him. Look down at verse 10. 
and I'll read through verse 12. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply, will multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only in supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. It was interesting when I went to seminary, um, I kind of decided just in my own heart that going to grad school was going to be way too expensive for me to take on. And so I was trying to find the place I could go study that was going to be the less obtrusive on my pocketbook. I could handle it uh, the easiest or the most comfortably financially. And so, so if you're a Baptist, Baptists do this really well. Southern Baptists have a, about six or seven seminaries, Bible colleges around the nation. Everything that you give to their funds, if you go to a Southern Baptist church, part of that giving goes right directly to these seminaries. And if you join a Baptist church, you can get like half off of your, your tuition if you want to be in ministry. Uh, for guys going into ministry, even if you're going on the, uh, on the mission field and you get plugged in with the Baptist International Mission Board is the, the biggest sender of missionaries across the world, and they do not require you to raise support if you get on with the International Mission Board. Um, there's, there's something about that that's just, that was just really appealing. And so I went and I applied to Dallas Seminary, I applied to Multnomah in Oregon, and I applied to two Baptist seminaries right here in the States because I was convinced that it was going to be easier for me to go through school if I didn't have the financial burden of tuition on my shoulders. Went to Southwestern in Fort Worth, toured the campus, did the whole thing. All the students do it. Uh, looked for jobs right there. And finally, I came back home, and I just sat down and talked to my wife, and I just said, listen, I think this is a great, great setup, but for some reason I feel like the Lord is calling us to go to Dallas instead. That was all, where all my mentors went. That was the pastor that discipled me for so many years, went there. And, that, and we just sat down, we talked about it, and we prayed about it. We said, if God, if you want us to go here, you are going to supply the needs for that. And so in all of our infinite wisdom, two years into marriage, we didn't have a house to go to. Neither one of us had jobs. We had a chocolate lab named Rahab. We had a couple of cars, and we had $10,000 in student loan debt. And we went off to Dallas to look for a house and to go to seminary there instead. And I realized one year into that, um, my wife landed a, a job that enabled us to pay off all of our debt that we had. Um, we got in, plugged in with a, a job at seminary. I was working on the maintenance crew where they paid for three-fourths of my tuition and gave me 40% off of books. Every, every worry that I had, every concern that I had that was financial, God just took them off the list one by one and made it very clear that we were going in the right direction. Um, I want you to look at verse 10 because verse, verse 10 has one present tense verb, and it's followed by three future tense verbs. Verse 10 begins this way, he who supplies, the one who is supplying, present tense, seed to the sower and bread for food, will supply, will multiply, and will increase. In other words, 
the supplier will supply. More than that, he will multiply. More than that, he will increase. Two words for supply in, in verse 10. He who supplies will supply. It's the same Greek word. The first word for supply has an added prefix that makes it even stronger. God is the supplier. He oversupplies. He abundantly supplies. And he will supply what you need to be a generous giver. Literally, the one who oversupplies will supply and will multiply for you. There's no question if God will keep his end of the promise. The question for us is if we are going to trust him financially. Paul mentions part of God's promises is giving cheerfully. It enriches the giver when we give, not just financially, like we saw in a general principle above, but also spiritually, like he will say in the verses below. You will be enriched in every way, is what these verses say. Not a great translation. It should be a, a present tense participle, and it should read something like this. You are being enriched in every way if you know Jesus. You are currently being enriched in every way because of the truth of the gospel, because of your identity in Christ. Those who are being enriched, those who know their identity in Christ, they live out the grace that they are abundantly receiving, financially serving, giving of themselves their time. In fact, we've got a prayer calendar that you can grab in the foyer, and it talks about this whole month we've designated to prayer requests for giving as a church. And it's not just giving financially, it's giving of your time, your talents, your resources, your abilities. God wants you wholly and totally surrendered to him, and there are many ways that you can give. You are being enriched in every way. And when you see that word enriched in the New Testament, you have to decide from the context. Is this talking about financial enrichment or is it talking about spiritual enrichment? And by far, over and abundantly, the cases are it's talking about a spiritual enrichment. Essentially, Paul is doing this. He's giving you a litmus test. It's not the case that if you give more money, your connection to God is going to increase and be better. We're not selling indulgences here. We're not going to try to earn God's graces by our giving. What he says is, perhaps your connection with God is weak if your grip on money is strong. Perhaps your connection to God is weak if your grip on money is just too tight. And I think many people have a, have a hard time giving, especially younger generations, but I think we have a hard time giving because we have this sense that more money equals security in our lives. We're going to be able to handle the trials, the suffering that might come in front of us. And the wrongful thought is that the worst thing that could happen to us is if we were broke. The worst thing that could happen to us is if we, were, we one day just lost it and we were poor. First of all, move to another country if you're concerned about it. Um, 50% of the world lives on $2.50 a day. That's $900 a year. And if you think you're broke, move to Honduras. You can retire for your generation and the next generation after you. We are, we are such a wealthy culture. We are such a wealthy economy. We just don't, we don't realize it. We don't realize how much we truly have and how much God has blessed us. In 2005, again, 50% of the world lived on $2.50 a day. So think differently about your wealth. 
Start to think differently about it. Second, so many things could be much worse than losing money. Imagine if a, a really close friend betrayed you. Have you, any of you experienced that before? Imagine if you got a diagnosis or a disease. All of a sudden, that begins to put money into perspective a lot differently. Imagine if you lost a spouse or lost a child. Is there any money in the world that could make up for something like that? There's so many worse things that could happen than, than losing money at times, and I, I think we're just so um, backwards when we think financially and as Americans. Part of what Paul is telling us is to be thankful for what you have. You are enriched spiritually. Be content with what you have. Be generous with what you have. And your enriched spiritual life will carry over because of it, a deeper spiritual life. There should be a direct relationship between a giving heart and a thankful heart. There should be a direct relationship between a giving heart and a thankful heart. A heart that is thankful for what you have in Christ is a heart that's giving back to the person of Christ. Number one is a purpose. Number two is provision. Number three is a picture. Number three is a picture. And I want you to look down at, at verse 13 here. I'm missing my slides. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 13. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Verse 14, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. And then the end of this paragraph goes like this, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. The beginning of verse 13, your text might have something different here by the approval of this service is what the ESV says. Your translation might say, by the proof of this ministry, or you might have as a result of your ministry. Paul was asking the Corinthian believers to give, and as they give, there would be something proved in the ministry of giving. There was a result of that ministry. Remember, the Corinthian church was mostly Gentiles who trusted Christ. Paul was raising up funds for believers in Jerusalem. They would primarily be Jews who became believers, who trusted Jesus as their Messiah. You kind of see this. I think it's, it's easy to overlook this, but Paul is asking Gentiles a different ethnicity to support Jewish believers, another, a different ethnicity. And so you see races, you see different ethnicities coming together in unity for the cause of the gospel. Ethnic lines of division were being broken early, and they were broken often. And they were also broken with the pocketbook, with people's generous donations. Um, this phrase is familiar. Paul used it earlier to describe the Macedonian believers in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians. Chapter 8, verse 2, is going to say something like this. They proved themselves in severe affliction. The Macedonian believers, even though they were going through a time of suffering and affliction, they still gave. They gave to the church. They gave to other people's needs. Here, the Corinthian believers would prove themselves not out of their affliction, but out of their prosperity. They weren't suffering like the Macedonian believers were, or like those in Achaia. Things were pretty good in Corinth. Paul doesn't ask them to give out of their affliction. He asks them to give out of their prosperity when times were good. 
Sometimes the challenge for us, even as believers, is, is not just giving when times are tough. Sometimes the challenge is giving when times are really good. Abraham Lincoln's famous quote, nearly any man can handle adversity. If you really want to test a man's mettle, give him prosperity and see what happens. Verse 15, when Paul closes this, very interesting. Notice who Paul gives thanks to at the end of this appeal. Verse 15, thanks to God for his indescribable gift. The author of all perfect gifts is the person who Paul directs his thanksgivings to. This, this indescribable gift could be one of, one of many things. It could be the gift of God's Son. could be the gift of salvation. could be the gift of grace. could be the gift of, of the financial well-being uh, that God had blessed them with even. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift and the opportunity to give to other people who had needs. As we apply this text, just, just really two quick points uh, to go back with here. This is, again, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is probably, if you're going to do a study on giving, at some point in time you're going to land on these two chapters. I want to encourage you to go back and read both of them fully in their context. There's just so much here in the context and the background of this situation. Um, the first thing I want to summarize this with is, is this point. Priority giving is launched with purpose. Priority giving starts with purpose. So biblically, when you look at the text and when you see the verses on giving throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, biblically speaking, one of the main priorities for us as believers is to get our finances in order, is to be responsible as stewards of what God has entrusted us with. Get your finances in order. One man has said the greatest tragedy is not death, but living without purpose. Without God, life has no purpose. Without purpose, life has no meaning to it. As a priority, if you're going to make giving a priority, you have to figure out your purpose in life. Why God created you in the first place what you're living for, what you're aiming toward. Without God, life has no purpose. Without purpose, life has no meaning. Without purpose, you have no priorities. And so over and over again, as a, as a refrain in Proverbs, you're going to hear verses that say stuff like this, Proverbs 3, 9, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops. Don't wait until it's the last of what you have and give that over to God. Give the best of what you have to God, because he deserves the best. Proverbs 21, verse 26, all day long he craves for more, but the righteous give without sparing. Giving should not be done capriciously or haphazardly. Giving should be done purposefully. Giving should be done with an attitude of a joyful heart. Uh, the Greek word for cheerful in verse 7 is hilarion. It's where we get our word hilarious from in English. We should be cheerful givers. Remember, heavenly investment is the only investment that is ultimately guaranteed. Heavenly investment is the only investment that is 100% guaranteed. John Piper says, Jesus is not against investments. Jesus is against bad investments. So make good investments for the kingdom of God as a priority and a purpose in your heart and life. Number two, 
A giving heart is a thankful heart. Over and over again in this context, we've read words of gratitude and thanksgiving. Look down at verse 11. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Verse 12, for the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of all the saints, but also overwhelming, overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. And then verse 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. The more, this is going to sound really silly and really simple, but it really is true. The more you look at Christ and the more you experience the great gift that he has given us in salvation, the more thankful you become. The more thankful you become, the more generous you become with your, with your time, with your resources. The more generous you become, the more like Christ you become. The more you gaze upon and the more you look upon Christ, the more of a giver you will become because Christ gave everything for us. He laid down his life on the altar of Calvary so that we might have forgiveness. When we see what Jesus, what God has done for us in sending his only son to die on a cross for us, what other response can we have but to give just a fraction of that back to him? As responsible stewards, God's entrusted us with many blessings. One of the best things that we can do is to be purposeful and thankful in our giving, to be content with what we have, and to drive at it with a purposeful heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, <clears throat> just each week as we've, we've gone through and uh, looked at these passages on giving, I've, I've come up and said, it is, it is hard for me to teach on giving. Um, so much of this is just uncomfortable for me. I, I look to your text, and I know it's right to preach on the things that are in your word and to not bypass them. Um, Lord, I pray that my heart will be reflected so that everybody here knows I'm not preaching on giving selfishly or out of this uh, autonomous desire to have more, knowing that their giving efforts supply all of our needs as a family um, and the pastors on staff, Dustin's needs and, and Stacy's needs and so many others and Patty's and Kirk's. Lord, it's just such a blessing to know that you use the community of faith to supply for us. It's also a blessing to know that these resources aren't, aren't ours. When we, when we give to TBC, we give to you. We give back to you what you've entrusted to us. I pray that as we leave today that we will think more purposefully about our giving, more intentionally about it. I pray that our giving would be done joyfully, not begrudgingly. Lord, give us a, give us a heart to give that's been transformed by the grace of God. Help us to understand that our spiritual lives have been so enriched by who we are in Christ, our identity in Christ, our security in Christ. One of the very least things that we can do is to give back to you. Help us to see those areas of our spiritual life that might be struggling because we're holding on to things too tightly. Help us to identify the idols in our hearts, and if one of those things is wealth, Lord, we pray that you would, you would take that and shatter that at the foot of the cross. God, I thank you so much for the generosity of our, our faith family here. I pray that that would continue the days, the weeks, the years ahead. Thank you for the legacy that many, many families are passing on to the next generation. I pray that younger generations would see what's happened 
at TBC. They'd be convicted and motivated to carry on that tradition for the generations in the future. Lord, and as stewards, help us to steward the resources that you have given us wisely. Help us to use these resources in the best way possible for our good and ultimately for your glory. We pray all these things to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen.